Dr. Angeline Lees, correct? That's right. Now, you are a paleoanthropologist. Is that how you say that? Yep, paleoanthropologist. Now, in your field of paleoanthropology, what do you mainly look at? My specialty is actually in the teeth of human ancestors. Mostly I look at things around 2 million years old, and those teeth can tell us things about um, how these creatures lived on the landscape, what they ate, how they grew, how they adapted. So my specialty is dentition. Now with teeth, I've heard that you now when you think of teeth, you do mainly think of like dietary stuff, but it can also come back to illness. It can also come back to even birth as well. So it can actually help you tell how old the individual is. How does that work? Well, a really, really cool thing. Teeth actually grow, or at least the enamel in your teeth grow kind of like tree rings. So every day when you're growing, we deposit a little layer of enamel. And there's a thing called periodicity, which is how much enamel you lay down over a certain amount of time. And if you can figure this out for each individual, you know, you cut the teeth in half, you image them with some fancy scanners, you can just count these rings and line them up with stress markers. So you'll get a stress marker if uh, you break your arm if you go through a dietary pressure like um, short-term starvation. And the biggest stress we ever go through is being born. The act of being born is very stressful on the body. So there's a really clear line. So you count these little tree rings up to that line, and that's when that individual's born. And then you can say, all right, 300 days after they were born, there's a dietary change. So maybe that's when they weaned from breast milk to solid foods. Maybe you can track when they migrated from one landscape to another, all by counting these little tiny rings inside the enamel. Has enamel changed much through time? So from just say like Homo erectus to Neanderthals, Homo sapiens? Structurally, not at all. What has changed is things like the shape, the thickness. Uh, so structurally, these rings, they exist in, in everything that has enamel. but something that separates different species of of humans and human ancestors is like the thickness of the enamel. Ours today is really, really thin. Is that just based off us eating softer foods? Yeah, we, we cook our food. Mm. We cut it up into small little bits. We're not trying to slice through raw meat or crush raw nuts in our teeth. So we don't need really, really thick enamel. And the one thing evolution will always do is go for the cheapest option possible, you know, use it or lose it. Mm. We don't need thick enamel, so the body's not going to spend the energy to build it. Is that kind of why you see now people have issues when their wisdom teeth are coming through? Because I'm gathering over, uh, if you go back in time, our jaws are going to be wider. So, and that's going to create more powerful crunch to chew up those foods that aren't cooked and stuff like nuts and things like that. But with cooking, foods get softer, jaws might get smaller, which creates issues with wisdom teeth coming through. Am I in the right ballpark then? Yeah, absolutely. Wisdom teeth is the best example of evolution still happening. We are slowly evolving to not have wisdom teeth. There are certain populations like the Inuit, where there's already like 30% of the population doesn't have wisdom teeth. Where's that population, the Inuit? Where is that? Uh, they're in the kind of northeast tundra area of Canada. Okay. Um, but... It, it, it changes a bit as you go around the world, but every population of human, the younger you are, the less likely you are to have all of your wisdom teeth. And so we are slowly evolving out of having them. We don't need them anymore. 
they cause us more problems than they help us right now. We don't need those extra teeth because we're not wearing through our enamel with really tough foods. And because our mouth is so small, they can kill us if we don't get them removed. And that's the perfect sweet spot for evolution saying, you know what, let's get rid of it. I can understand. To me, it seems almost disadvantageous as well to have smaller mouths and smaller jaws and weaker jaws and stuff like that because I feel like it might create issues down the line. Can you see something like that? Look, I think the way we are currently developing, aside from things like dental abscesses and needing to get your teeth removed and the reliance on that kind of medicine, it's not going to cause a functional issue because we're not going to, you know, suddenly not be able to cook our food anymore, Mm. suddenly not have the ability to cut up our food anymore. Frankly, I mean, look at how long we're living. Look at how many people exist without teeth in their older years. We have every capability of producing pureed food. You don't die the minute you don't have functional teeth, which used to be true in our evolutionary history. Up until the advent of dental medicine, tooth abscesses and wearing through your enamel was the most common way for us to die. And when you talk about modern populations, it's really interesting because you don't just get, quote, natural evolutionary pressures anymore. You now have culture, medicine, the way we act, all tying into how we adapt. So short of, you know, us blowing up the world and suddenly forgetting how to make fire, (laughs) we're going to be all right in terms of having smaller teeth. Yeah, blowing up the world, that's a topic way off teeth. (laughs) (laughs) But but still a little topical. (laughs) Yeah, a little. I I think it was, this is Okay, this is a bit of a tangent, but have you heard of the Gigantopithecus and they only found the teeth of it, mm-hmm. but they still somehow found out it was kind of an ape-like creature just by its teeth? Mm-hmm. How, how, how do we find out what something is just by its teeth? So if we were to find a tooth of, let's just, let's just say it was the front tooth, mm-hmm. something that kind of looks similar on a uh, Neanderthal and a Homo sapiens, how can we tell what is what? Mm. Well, f- the first thing I'll note is that most of the fossil record is just teeth. Mm. So about 90% of the fossil record, both for humans and apes, are just one tooth, isolated teeth. And that's because they preserve so much better than the rest of the body. Why is that? Because they're just bone, right? Well, they're not actually. Enamel is already more or less a rock. They're so inorganic that they don't degrade the same Right. The process of fossilization that the rest of the body has to go through to, to survive is has to happen in a really kind of specific environment. And most things that die don't become fossils, whereas teeth are already naturally kind of down that road. So they just preserve so much better. So most of the record is teeth. Most of the inferences that you'll hear about this evolu- these evolutionary questions are from just teeth. Now, how we take a tooth and make these inferences, there are, so I'm going to backtrack a little so Mm -hmm. I can explain this. If you talk about analogy or the, the kind of interpretation from analogy, what we take is you say we have features A, B, and C, okay? Chimps have features A, B, and D. 
if we share A and B, most likely our common ancestor also did. And then we developed C after we split and they developed D. So this is kind of how we track back evolution. Things that we have, point. right, back to our last common ancestor. But we know how each of us changed. So if you were to find a tooth, like the Gigantopithecus, you can look at its shape, you can look at its enamel thickness, you can look at what the different cusps and bumps and ridges on the teeth look like and say, all right, this resembles what we know apes look like as compared to what humans and human ancestors look like. We know that it can match their dietary patterns. We know that it fits more with the anatomy of one branch as compared to the other. Now, the example you picked was Neanderthals versus Homo sapiens. And because they were so close well, in, exactly. in terms of time. Exactly. In kinds of time and in terms of anatomy, we're really, really similar. And there is definitely a lot of gray area in this field where you can't know. My first publication was about a, a singular tooth found at a cave site in South Africa where there had no other hominid material. And what we are able to say is out of the three that we know exist in that area, we know it's not this one, but it could be either of these two. And we just can't tell. And sometimes you just can't tell. Sometimes they're too similar. And that's... That is what it is. So if you can't tell, what do you just put it down to? I mean, so the result of that paper was we said it, it is either one of these two species and and we need more data. And that's, you know, that is the fun part, but also the frustrating part of working with such a fragmentary record. <laughs> that comes record. back to that, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, when we're looking back in the past, this far in the past, you're not just looking through a window, you're looking through a a pinhole, you know, the, the, the percentage of things that were on the landscape that we actually get to look at, it's like you're trying to do a thousand piece puzzle with four pieces. We're doing, you know, you do the best, doing you, can, the best you can yes. and you hope for another piece. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it, you dig out the dirt, come on, man, I just want one more piece. <laughs> I know, but it, it, the thing that makes it fun is that that means every single thing that you pull out of the ground has the ability to rewrite our entire understanding. Mm. Everything you pull out can be that special and that significant. You're talking about um, like enamel issues and stuff mm -hmm. like that that we had in the past, but I think it's I've heard that we have less cavity issues in the past than we do today. Mm -hmm. and, but that's mainly because of how much we um, like sugar up our foods, how much we uh, process our foods and stuff like that. But has it really got to do with how long we're living to? I mean, we didn't really have a long time to put up uh, cavities in the first place. We kind of died pretty quickly back then. I mean, there's the evidence of... I mean, you could sort of say there's that Neanderthal story of the Neanderthal that was... Uh, I think he died in his 50s or 40s or something like that. Mm -hmm. Had, like, no teeth to chew up his food. But that's just one example but going back to what I was saying, is it just got to do with um, they're not living long, living long enough to build up enough hay like us, like our cavities like us? I, I think it's both. So we definitely have a diet these days that encourages cavity growth. There's mm -hmm. a lot of sugar in our foods. We also have a lot thinner enamel, which leaves us more vulnerable to cavities. The oldest cavity in the hominid fossil record actually comes from Dremelin. It's two million years old. But they're so rare at that point. 
and that cavity is right right down at the base of the crown near the root. Um, it is true we weren't living nearly as long. Neanderthals weren't living as long. When you go back in time, that reduces even further. But we are living to the point that the teeth are completely worn down to root stubs, right? So they're still using their teeth quite intensively. So I think I think it's probably a bit of both. I know, you know, if you lived longer and didn't have the sugar, you probably would have fewer cavities and then a shorter lifespan. I mean, I don't know about you. I had cavities in my baby teeth. It didn't take me very long. <laughs> <laughs> what was your diet? <laughs> well, no fluoride in America. Yeah. Yeah. So you bring up Dremelin. Could you describe what Dremelin actually is for people that don't know? Obviously, it's an excavation site. Mm-hmm. So Dremelin is a paleo cave. Mm. So when you when I say cave, I'm sure you picture a big cavern and we have to climb down into it. Actually, I was imagining just like a hole in the wall that you got to go in. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like a like a rock shelter type cave. Yeah. Absolutely. Paleo cave means it's no longer a functioning cave system. And most of the time... What is that? Well, picture your cave with your big cavern and then chop the top off. Okay. Yeah, so it's okay. not a cave at all. Cave at all. It's a hole in the ground. Yeah. But it used to be a cave. Okay. A functioning cave system means there's still water flow. There's still creatures living in there. There's still life and growth. A paleo used to be that. It filled up with sediment. That sediment then turned into something we call breccia, which is basically dirt turned concrete. It's so solid. And it filled. And then there wasn't a cave anymore. And then over the years, erosion happens and it exposes it. We think we've probably lost about 20 meters of height. So the entire top half of the cave is gone. So when you walk into Dremelin, it looks like a relatively unimpressive hole in the ground. (laughs) What happened to the top half of that cave? Is that just from erosion? Yeah, just natural erosion. The other thing that's happened at a lot of these cave sites in South Africa specifically is lime mining. So during the gold rush in South Africa, you need lime to process the gold. And lime is in stalactites and stalagmites. So they go into these caves, they blow them up and pull the stuff out. So part of the cave that was left also got detonated with TNT. (laughs) Good luck finding those bones. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what we're left with is kind of the bottom half of a cave system, which was filled up with this breccia concrete. And slowly that erodes back into dirt. It's the process we call decalcification. Mm -hmm. And there's two ways to excavate this stuff. You either wait until it's soft sediment again and excavate it kind of the way you're picturing, you know, toothpicks and trowels. Mm. Or you pick up chunks of the breccia and you put them in acid to speed up that process and prep the bones out that way. Or you can do what we call a mechanical prep, where basically you take a dental scribe and the the concreted sediment off the bones. Dude, that sounds like it takes a really long time. It does take a really long time. Now, Drimelin is predominantly a soft sediment site. We still have areas of solid concrete breccia, but a lot of it has already decalcified. So most of the excavation that we do is little wooden skewers and paintbrushes. (laughs) (laughs) You need a lot of patience for this job. Jesus Christ. Um, taking Dremelin as an example, mm-hmm. what made it such a good site to preserve things? And what makes 
How do you know a site's going to be a good place to dig in the first place? I mean, is it just the thing of, oh, I found a bone, let's just keep digging here? Or do you look at a, a spot and say, hey, we could find something here? There's a lot of luck that goes into it, I'll be honest. But we know that in South Africa, cave sites are really, really good for the fossilization process. And the reason for that is it's a relatively controlled climate. Underground, you don't get spikes of hot and spikes of cold. The humidity is relatively stable, so it doesn't go really dry or really wet. There's a consistent low-level water flow, which is what you need for the fossilization process. Is that just for the moisture? So the way fossilization works, uh, you can picture a bone laying on the ground Mm -hmm. and water's running over it. And then that water evaporates. But that's not 100% clean, purified, distilled water. So when it evaporates, it leaves behind minerals. And those minerals, at a molecular level, replace the organic material in the bone with inorganic mineral. Mm. So by the time something's a fossil, really, it's a bone-shaped rock. So it's not bone anymore. Not in that Technically. way. Not, not in that way, no. And this really nice, stable climate in a cave is ideal for fossilization. So it's almost so, like finding, this is a really bad analogy, it's almost like finding a footprint, if that makes sense. Well, I mean, we do find footprints, and that's a whole other thing. Um, but yeah, I mean... That's amazing. <laughs> if you do, if you want to find a new site, you need to be familiar with the area, because different areas of the world preserve in different ways. And most of my expertise is around South Africa, so that's what I'm talking about. And if you were to find a cave, that's where you're going to start looking, because that's, you know, that's your best case scenario for preservation. Mm. Almost all of the stuff we found in South Africa comes from caves. Not because that's the only place these creatures were, were existing, No, well, but that's uh, where they're preserving. Neanderthals, they were mainly in, uh, if I remember right, uh, in Europe or something, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can't remember where in Europe anymore. But from what you're describing in South Africa, it was mainly the Homo erectus and stuff. Well, you were just telling me before that it's only recently that you found the Homo erectus mm. in the Drummond site. Before that, it was the Paranthus robustus. That's right. So <laughs> there are the, the really interesting thing about South Africa, especially around the two million year mark is we actually have three different genus, genera of humans living on the landscape or human ancestors living on the landscape. You have Australopithecus, you've got Paranthropus, and you've got Homo. Was there any... Sorry to cut you mm -hmm. off there. Was there any evidence of these three interbreeding? That's a really difficult question. So, obviously, we know that Homo sapiens and Neanderthals interbred. Mm -hmm. We also know that Denisovans uh, joined the party at some point. Mm. But at this time point, we are so far beyond the ability of genetics to look into these kinds of questions. Okay. Because of these things I told you about fossilization, there's no organics left. Where are you getting the DNA? Yeah. But there's a, a technique called paleoproteomics, which, which looks at proteins that have been calcified alongside the bony material. Now, there's a really recent study that has come out and shown that it will work at 2 million years, which is older than we've ever managed to push this method before. 
and proteomics can get you some of the way towards genetics. That's a very long way of saying, we're not sure yet, I wouldn't be surprised, and we're working. Okay. <laughs> so again, I don't know. <laughs> um, um, but what I was saying about the multiple types of human in South Africa is mm. we have Paranthropus robustus, we have Australopithecus africanus, Australopithecus sediba, and until recently we had Homo something. And Homo in South Africa was really this confused grab bag of things that aren't Australopithecus and aren't Paranthropus, but not really reliably attributed to a species because it didn't really look like any of the more confidently defined species from East Africa. And so the discovery of the erectus skull at Dremelin in 2015 has really changed our understanding because we finally have something that can be confidently attributed. Now, it doesn't have any teeth, which is a bummer because most of the fossil record is teeth. What doesn't have any teeth, sorry? The homo erectus cranium. Is that just through, as you were saying before, uh, just through decay or? You know, this is what I, there's a lot of luck and this individual is just a skull cap. Doesn't have a teeth, doesn't have a face. So it's just the top of the head. Just the top of the head. Wow. Okay. It's also a juvenile. So did you tell it was Homo judging by its brain case? Yeah. Okay. So Homo erectus has, lucky for us, a really distinct brain case shape. Mm -hmm. It's something called plectocephalic, which means long and low. And if you look at it from, the, from above, it kind of looks like a teardrop. Mm -hmm. And this is something that unites all of Homo erectus, Homo ergaster, from Africa, from Asia, across a million and a half years, they all have this shape. And much to all of our surprise, so does this individual from Drumlin two million years ago. But it's hard to then say what that means for the rest of the record when you can't compare it to the teeth that make up the rest of the record. Or this individual is a juvenile who's probably only about three years old when they died. So you, we're not 100% sure what he would have looked like as an adult. Mm -hmm. um, so these are a lot, there's gaps in this record. And all we can do is keep digging and hope we find another one. Mm. Uh, so do you think there's a lot of argument why uh, certain species went extinct in the first place? Because you've found Homo erectus kind of living alongside the Australopithecus and what was the other one again? Paranthropus. Is it possible that it was down to competing and fighting each other rather than, I know there's the argument of um, uh, climate change and stuff like that, but does, doesn't that kind of throw that argument out the window of finding them living together? Well, it's, it's a really, really interesting point in our evolutionary history because at two million years, what you have is, we know there's a big climate event, mm. a huge wave of aridification in South Africa. Everything's suddenly getting drier. Mm. You're losing the forested area for a more kind of savanna, grassy, grassy um, type environment. And that's why we left the trees supposedly in the first place. Right? That's that's one of the ideas. Yeah, mm. to be able to move across the landscape uh, and look over tall grass and mm. all of these things. Um, but right before this, we have about a million years of kind of just one species, Australopithecus africanus, and it changes 
across those that time, but not much. It's one species. And then you hit two million years and you hit this climate event. And then suddenly you've got Africanus disappearing and you've got Oshpithecus sediba. You've got the beginnings of Homo. You've got the very start of Paranthropus. So what is happening is suddenly there's this new evolutionary pressure. Do we know and how it's split into three of that species? Well, we don't know for sure that they've all come from Africanus. Mm. Um, you know, because there's stuff happening in East Africa, there's stuff yeah, happening yeah, outside yeah. of this region. But what we do have is a climate event happening, a new evolutionary pressure, and different groups kind of taking different paths to try to adapt to this. If you think about, you know, you're going down a highway and a tree falls across it and now you're blocked. That's the new pressure, right? One group goes right, one group goes left. And at the start, they're pretty close together, but this road diverges and you get further and further apart. Mm. And interestingly, at two million years, we, our ancestors, we were not winning. We find one Homo erectus for every 10 or 20 Paranthropus. We were not the one you would have bet on if you were a betting man. But a million years later, Homo erectus has populated into Asia, into Southern Europe, and Paranthropus has gone extinct. I wonder um, if they, if it does come down to just purely they were fighting each other, they were going to war against each other. If that was the case, could it we have won purely, I shouldn't say we, could have, the erectors have won purely down to them being bipedal. And I've heard that the Homo erectus were the first ones to kind of develop tools and stuff like that. So could have had the advantage that way. Homo erectus wasn't the first one to make tools, but they were the first one to have a complex, diverse tool culture. But we've been making tools for a million years before this. Wow. Um, was it the Erectus that was the first one to use that um, adhesive? Mm-mm, mm-mm. No, that comes much later. Okay, yeah. Um, Erectus is known for something called the Acheulean hand axe. Right. right which okay. is this huge multi-tool. And we're not 100% sure what it was used for because a lot of them are way too big to be functional. So... I don't know. Maybe it's like having a Ferrari, right? Yes. And it's kind of showing off rather than like yeah, a youth that's going to get the job it, done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to remember right at the beginning, Erectus is known for having a bigger brain. Mm-hmm. But right at the start, it's not that much bigger. We're just starting to get bigger. It's known for having a really complex tool culture. But right at the beginning, that's not established yet. I think what you're probably seeing is rather than, and this is my hunch, right? Rather than something that's supported by a lot of evidence. um, Rather than direct conflict, I think what you're seeing is two groups that are exploiting the landscape differently and having various levels of success. So we know that Paranthropus goes down a path of hyper-specialization. They get really, really good at one thing. And that thing is eating foods that no one else can eat. No competition. No one's gonna fight them. Which was? To eat tubers and bark and oh, grass. okay, yeah. Right? 
Whereas our lineage, Homo, becomes a generalist. It can eat everything. It's pretty good at everything. It's not specialized at anything. It's never going to beat Paranthropus at its special thing, but it can do kind of anything. Mm. And that makes you adaptable. Our specialist adaptation is we are adapted to be adaptable. And what happens then, it's what happened to the woolly mammoth. Once things change and your hyper-specialist thing doesn't work anymore, you're trapped in a corner and you go extinct. Whereas if you're adapted to be adaptable, you just stop eating that thing and you eat the new thing. You well, the, can you can adjust. Mm. Well, the woolly mammoth, the theory behind what, there was this two theories behind it. Um, one is that it was due to the Neanderthals just hunting them, hunting their population out, which there is evidence for it. I think there was a cave where they found like 12 mammoth bones and it was mainly their right shoulder that was missing. Mm. Um, but again, it could also be just to climb it. There is also the, uh, I'm not sure if this was around that time, the uh, Younger Dryas theory. Mm. Um, I'll, I'll get back to that later on. Uh, but something else I'd like to touch on was the brain that you brought mm. up with the Homo erectus. Now, with the brain of the Homo erectus, even though, here's my thing, even though the case is bigger, depends on which part of the brain. I mean, like, look, if it had, like us, a bigger frontal cortex, which is like decision-making and stuff mm. like that, then, yeah, it's obvious why that thing would have lived longer. But if it was just to say the occupable lobe that was better, which means it has better vision, or it... it, it depends on the part of the brain. The language part of the brain could have been bigger so they could communicate better. It really just depends. Right. And yeah. this is this is the interesting thing, you know, so brains don't preserve. No. But what we do have is something called endocast, which is basically the sediment fills up the brain case and then turns into breccia. And it molds to the undulations of the skull. So then if you get that, you can look at the external shape. So you can kind of tell. Right. And the great thing about the baby skull that we found at Dremelin is it's so young that the cranial bones were still quite um, mold, quite molded around the, the brain. Mm-hmm. So you can see the lobes. And, and we're currently working on this, so we haven't, you know, um, I don't have any solid conclusions for you. But in addition to the rectus brain getting bigger, we are seeing a rearrangement. We are seeing a development of some of those kind of more important lobes that make us us. You're starting to see not just growth, but neurological rearrangement. Things like, we, we don't know if they had language, Within but reason, you, are starting, you yeah. are starting to see things like handedness. But handedness. Right-handed versus left-handed. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you're starting to see things like an expansion of a frontal lobe. Mm. So, yes, absolutely right. It's not just the size. You are seeing rearrangements mm. in erectus as compared to the Australopithecus species that came before. Because as I was talking to you before, it's also about connection too. Mm-hmm. I mean, so Neanderthals had a bigger brain than us. I think it was like 1,400 cubic centimetres mm-hmm. or something, and ours is roughly eleven to 1,200. But a bigger brain doesn't necessarily mean smarter. If that was the case, then whales would be... Einstein. Right. <laughs> um, it's all, from what I'm understanding, it's all about connections as well. Mm. And depending on, 
are the parts of the brain that have the strongest connections and thing like that. Um, but uh, I digress on that. Um, when it, coming back to Dremelant a bit more, so when it comes to an excavation site, when it's a, it's a bit of a sad question, when do you know when that's kind of it for a site? Let's just say you dig there for 50 years and you're still digging. Would it just get to the point where you're just bringing up the same thing and then it's time to kind of move on, if that makes sense? or I think if you're digging and you're just finding more of the same, yeah, that's not a reason to stop because mm. our sample sizes are so small. Mm. You should see the look on the face of the statisticians at my university <laughs> when I go try to get them to run analyses for me. They say, oh, what's your sample size? And I'll say six. And they'll say, thousand? Hundred? I'm like, no, just six. <laughs> so more of the same is just fine, thank yeah. you. But you can outdig a site, mm. right? You can you can be done. Um we so the legislation in South Africa wants you to leave what we call a um a reference section. So an area of the site that you don't excavate that pref- preserves the stratigraphy. So if anyone wanted to go back and kind of figure out the formation, it's still there. Mm-hmm. But you can be done otherwise. And then and then you're done. And, you know, these caves are bounded by dolomite walls. You can run out of breccia mm. and then run out of fossil. Absolutely. We have a secondary deposit at Dremelin, which is much smaller, and it will run out. And then that's the information you've got, and you try to find the next one. I think we're a long way off of that from Dremelin, to be honest. So I mentioned the lime mining, and a lot of the stuff that's already been excavated from Dremelin has been in that kind of really disturbed, really out of context area because there was cave collapse and and mining explosions and things like that. And the area we're getting into now is much more intact, much more stratified, and you have this kind of really beautiful contextual understanding of the things we're finding we're also finding more complete things no surprise this part hasn't been detonated um but germline has been excavated since 1992 wow and that actually makes it a relatively young site in the area that i work some of them have been excavated since the 50s or 40s well, i was born in 94 so thank you for saying that <laughs> <laughs> no worries um so I think it will run out, but we're not there yet. We're yeah. a long ways off. Mm. Especially, you know, when you're digging with toothpicks and takes some time. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a reason you can only dig with toothpicks and certain um, tools, I guess you could say, rather than just say an excavator, which would save you so much time? These things are so fragile. Okay. Yeah. Honestly, even with the toothpicks, some of them, break. some of them are just unsalvageably broken. What we do is, you know, you'll find a fossil coming up in the ground, and some of them are still pretty calcified. Some of them are pretty solid. Some of them, we call them toast bone because it looks like toast crumbs. Wow. And if you were to blow on it, it would be gone into dust. So we have a consolidant, a conservator's clue called paraloid, and you'll drip, drip, drip this stuff on it to kind of consolidate it into a more solid mass. Mm. And then you'll lift it out in a in a bed of dirt and take it back to the lab to very carefully take it out that way because they're just so fragile. The homo erectus cranium I told you about, which 
in relative terms, is in great condition, came out of the ground in over 300 pieces. Jesus. The Paranthropus robustus that cranium... That brings me back to the puzzle of four. <laughs> That's right. It's yeah. the 3D puzzles. Yeah. The, the Paranthropus robustus cranium came out in over 600 pieces, and that thing's beautifully preserved. So these are your best case scenarios. I hate to be the guy to put that thing together. My, my colleague is the one who puts them back together. I dig them out of the ground, he puts them back together. It's it's a system that works. <laughs> Damn, was that guy getting paid by the hour? He must be <laughs> Um So you you went back there recently and you were telling me that you found I think it was like seven. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Now when you say you found new seven hominin species, you don't mean new species to add to the list of like Homo or um Australopithecus. Uh, just mean new to that site, correct? Correct. Okay. They're new specimens. Mm. So, of the seven we found, I would say five are confidently Paranthropus robustus, and the other two are most likely Homo. Now, I've got to do a little bit more work before I can confidently say they're Homo erectus because of those questions I told you about mm. what Homo species in South Africa looks like. Um, but they are spectacular nonetheless. So normally what you find, if you're lucky, is a single tooth per season. One tooth of a hominin, and that's a great season. And this year we found two different isolated teeth, a vertebra, two jaws, and two bits of maxilla, which is your upper tooth row. And one of them is a, like almost complete jaw. It's incredible. Because the more complete a specimen is, obviously the more you can say about it. If I just have a single front tooth, I could only say so much as compared to a whole tooth row and the bone it sits in and all of this. And I think part of the reason we found so much is like I said, we're starting to get into the part of the site that is much more intact. But this was our first year back since pre-COVID. Four years we didn't excavate this site, so we weren't sure what we were going to find. Nothing, because of how much it will have degraded over four years. That was actually my bet, but I guess I'm a pessimist. And then they were just coming out everywhere. And I'll tell you what, we gave these students such a skewed expectation, <laughs> because almost all of them found one. Wow. And I was telling them, like, this is how it normally works. Don't get your don't get your hopes up. <laughs> and it was just a really, really fantastic season. The area of study of paleoanthropology. Like I'll speak when I was speaking to the um, paleontologist on here. Um, how rich is the area in terms of say? Now, what I mean by that is let's just say you got a physicist, right? They will probably be. There's probably a lot of money in that, and and there's probably a lot of invested money in that. So the governments and uh, people who just say, well, set, well, will fund it themselves. You know what I mean? Like, is there a lot of funding into paleoanthropology with governments and uh, private organizations and stuff like that? Then you think there should be. It's, in my opinion, not going the right way. Mm. So. A lot of paleoanthropology is based in the United States. Because mm. I only ask that and because I feel like a lot of people tend to be looking out, 
rather than in mm. these days. Yeah, and you know, I think if you if you look at narratives coming out of universities, mm. this whole uh, job ready, industry focused, we're a bit disconnected from that. Mm. So the money that's being focused in that direction is kind of skipping over us because. Mm. You know, I love what I do, mm. but I'm not changing anyone's life. I'm not curing cancer. And so there's not as much funding for that. And there are ethos in America where a lot of this funding comes from that are perhaps moving away from supporting ideas around evolution. And that is most definitely impacting our funding. Um, I have to say Australia is still pretty good. Mm. On this, you know, the ARC, the Australian uh, Research Council, still gives out a fair amount of money. But gone are the days where, in the history of this field, we've got the big private philanthropists yeah, funding us, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, funding is definitely constantly the forefront of your mind. It's getting scarcer and scarcer. It is mm. getting getting more difficult. And part of that, you know, I'm never going to say that they should take away money from cancer research funding to let no, me go dig up no. bones. And... I understand also the desire to prioritize making sure money, you know, the truth is we are going and working in, in developing countries mm -hmm. and there should definitely be a system that means that money goes to the people living in these developing countries. And what you want to be mindful of is you're not, you know, a privileged person from a Western country coming in with all this money, doing your work and then leaving without any benefits to the mm -hmm. people who live there. So I don't think we've quite struck the balance between making sure the science gets funded and making sure those kind of more progressive things also happen. It's very much still left up to the individual to make sure you're being responsible in your kind of research designs. But 50% uh, of the conversations I have are about research and 50% about making figuring out how to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I think half my time is taking up with grant applications. <laughs> You know, that's a really good research study. So how are we going to fund this? <laughs> yeah. yeah, great, great, super exciting. Where's the money? <laughs> it makes me kind of sad to hear that because whenever I hear about, so for example, I um I have a big interest in um like fungi and stuff like that. I find fungi really interesting. Mm -hmm. And then when you hear about, you know, uh, early hominids sort of gathering fungi. Now, here's a question for you. Now, a lot of people will say, I won't say it, it's like, I find it's mainly people that are too interested in fungal and herbal medicine that say this, that, you know, oh, our hominid ancestors were gathering and eating, eating these things for medicine. It's kind of like, did he tell you that? Are you sure that's what it was for? Are you sure they just weren't hungry? <laughs> um, what's your opinion on that? Because obviously you're in the dental region, you'd see it like obviously in the crypts of their teeth and stuff like that, you'll find, you know, could be all sorts of different things but you probably do find fungi in it what is your opinion on them using it for medicine or just food in general because obviously back then food would have been really hard to gather mm -hmm. so anything you're going to get your hands on that you can eat and then you know you can eat you're going to eat it right no obviously they can't pop down to the supermarket when they're hungry um but i think there is enough evidence when you get into the more recent things like neanderthals to say that they probably at least recognized when they eat these things, it helps with my toothache, for example. Well, some of the things that they're eating, we know have medicinal properties. That was a tree bark, right? Uh, 
Um, I cannot actually remember what the plant was. Yeah. I'll be honest with you. Um, but... Damn it. <laughs> you should have asked me in a couple of weeks when yeah. I'm teaching this in class. <laughs> um, I think we can be confident to say it is very likely that they were aware of the medicinal properties of these things. Now, how they figured that out, I'm not sure. Maybe it was because, hey, we can eat this. Oh, you know, that really helped Joe over there feel better. Mm. Maybe we should try this again. I mean, these were not stupid creatures. Yeah. Um, and I think we also know about Neanderthals that they have a level of culture and ceremony and understanding over these things. I, th I think that's not a stretch. Mm. When you go older than that, I get a little more skeptical. Skeptical, if only because is that purely off intelligence or no? It's off. You have to be really careful about your assumptions when you're interpreting data, because our data is full of holes. You know, mm. we don't have the, anywhere near the full picture. It's the four pieces of the puzzle. Well, that's science, and right? <laughs> that's science. Yeah. But you have to be careful, you know, because there's things that you want to see. There's things you can accidentally project through your own personal biases. Mm. Um, and we just, I, I think parts of my field, certain, certain people in my field go a little bit too far. Take the evidence, take A, B, and then jump to Z, mm. you know? So you do have to be careful. There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, maybe, maybe this was happening. But if you're saying, this is definitely what was happening, I, I don't like that anywhere. Because you could find a lot of papers that would say, yes, th these papers say this. Mm -hmm. So that means this. But then there'll be other papers that will completely contradict that. Mm -hmm. But then a lot of people just kind of be like, nah, they don't know. What yeah, you have, to, you have to be careful you're not cherry picking mm. to kind of support your own ideas. Mm. But... I think it's an interesting idea. Mm. I'd love it to be true. I just don't know if we have the evidence yet. I just... It's hard for me to confidently say... I mean, look, I'm not an expert in the field, but it's really hard for me to confidently say that, yeah, these, uh, homo, uh, these homo ancestors of ours were using this as medicine just because it's... It's hard to say without getting the source right from them telling mm -hmm. you so, and you can't really do that. Mm -hmm. And obviously, they would have just been foraging for anything they can eat. I mean, I mean, if it helped them with pain, would they have known this thing specifically was helping them with pain? Maybe, maybe not. It's it's hard. It's so hard to say. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that is something they probably would have been able to put together. And you know, by the time you get to erectus, you're talking about. Sure, their brains aren't as big as ours. They're not probably as smart as us. But they have managed... They're the first ones to leave Africa and populate the world. This is a smart, socially reliant population. You know, they had to have had certain aspects of their life that would have been quite similar to ours. You know, the thing that really gave us an edge is this group reliance thing. And that lets you do things like draw these connections, notice these these patterns, help each other, heal each other. So I'm also very hesitant to say, nah, this would have been beyond them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. 
and that that's that's kind of my ethos all the way back in time you know i've had i've heard someone say you know um the idea that Paranthropus was making tools is like saying an antelope was making tools, which is ridiculous, right? But I mean, well, here's my thing on that. So I've mentioned this on the podcast once before. So there's a video of, um, there was a, I'm pretty sure it was a crow. Now this crow is thirsty. You probably know what video I'm on about, if you've seen it. Uh, so basically there was a bottle of water, but the water wasn't high enough for the crow to reach it. So it gets rocks and starts putting it in the water to raise the water level to drink it. Yep. Isn't that technically tool use? Yes. Now, one something that a, a, a pedant would call you out on is the difference between tool use and tool manufacture, right? But what that is, in my opinion, yeah, I suppose, is a hangover of this idea that we are somehow special and better. And you'll see that bias in a lot of these interpretations, you know. That seems really human to say. It's, honestly, the thing that lies behind a lot of these these hesitations are, but they weren't us. We're, something has to set us apart. Something has to make us special. And I think the distinction between tool use and tool manufacture is worth noting, but I feel like a lot, maybe too much significance is put on that you know crows dolphins octopus apes monkeys they will all use tools there's a question around you know you can picture the gorilla termite fishing they will select a branch and they will use that branch to fish out termites that's tool use now if they select a branch and they pull off all the bark and all the twigs attached to it, is that tool making now? That's really interesting. Where's that line? Yeah. You know, I think it's kind of, it's meaningful, but it's not as meaningful as we like to pretend. I find it's really annoying because I think it, it really, the idea of us always putting ourselves as the forefront of comparison. It, it really is human. And I think it just, it brings me back to, uh, that's what I'm trying to use, trying to say this very carefully, but <laughs> I'll, I'll just say it anyway. It brings me back to the whole uh, religion thing of we are the reason, if that makes sense. We are the number one thing here. Mm -hmm. You know, we are the reason for this planet in the everything first place. Put on Earth yeah, for everything us. was. Yeah, that's that's what I was kind yeah. of trying to say. And you know, if you're not careful, when you talk about human evolution, you can fall into that trap. Like we were some predetermined endpoint, which is not true. Mm. Evolution was Nature not. Nature doesn't give a shit. About this. <laughs> no, evolution was not for the last few million years trying to become us. No. If if. If you really think nature cares about you, I dare you to swim in the middle of the ocean at night. I dare you. <laughs> I, I have a joke with a colleague uh, because I, I go on this rant occasionally and he says that I should write a book called Evolution Doesn't Care About You. Mm. You um, should. <laughs> I'll be your first reader. <laughs> <laughs> but, but basically the idea behind I it... I want a signed copy, by the way. Is that... Okay, I can do that. Um, once you've passed on your genes, 
It doesn't care if you're still alive. No. And I'll go back to the, the thing I said earlier about us evolving out of wisdom teeth. The reason that's taking so long is that if it's going to kill you, it's after the age you've already reproduced. Mm. So evolution doesn't care anymore. No. Right? So that's going to take a long time. Um, and and if you approach looking at evolution with this idea of a predetermined endpoint, you're going to miss things. Like how two million years ago, like I said, we were not winning. We were not picking the right... Like You would have thought our road was the dead end, not theirs. Mm. And it's not like some divine being stood in and said, hey, hey, no, hey. This, this isn't working out. <laughs> hey, go this way. Yeah. Go this way. Yeah, no, I mean... There's some cool stuff over here. All you have to do is, you know, how does your back feel after you sit down all day? Not even that. How, how does my back feel in general? <laughs> right. And that's because we have taken a skeleton that spent millions and millions of years evolving to stand on four legs and mm. balanced it upright. And we've done the best we can with what we've got. But if you were designing something to be upright, this is not what you would have done. No. Bad plan. No. <laughs> Bad plan. I mean, as soon as we started basically standing up, we had back issues, knee issues. Exactly. I mean, I really like talking about, when I talk to my first years, the idea of co-opted anatomy. Mm. We've taken something that was was evolved for purpose A and made it do Mm. purpose B. And that's why you end up with things like vestigial anatomy, which I love, Mm. or um, these things that do the job, but not perfectly not very well you know yes yes we walk on two legs (laughs) sounds like me you we walk on two legs but we've got back and knee problems Mm. um we we've become weaker right all is a sacrifice for our brains Mm. we we can chew our food but our wisdom teeth are going to kill us if we don't get them cut out like it's it's this trade-off you know we are not a designed endpoint we didn't know this is where we were going well look i'm I'm not atheist, I'm not religious, but um, like I'm very strong agnostic. Mm. But the whole thing of, you know, uh, we were, it, we were designed in God's image. It's kind of like, well, God must have a lot of back problems. <laughs> 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 no, I think, I think if we were designed, we would have a lot fewer design flaws. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we are without a doubt the worst design. <laughs> You know, I mean, we're really I, smart, but we're also really dumb. Right. Es- and especially. We have, <laughs> <laughs> we have sacrificed a lot of other adaptions for the brain. Yeah. Our, our adaption is being able to think ourselves around problems. We're not fast. We don't have sharp teeth. We don't have claws. We break real easy. I mean, you go back, let's just say, 100 years ago, right? A f- I'm pretty sure it was 100 years ago. We were we thought mercury was medicine. Right. And we thought taking pieces of brain out would fix people of their delusions. Right. We we would um, you know, basically scrutinize people for the most you know, benign things like being with like being like homosexual. So like yeah, we, so we still do that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. Um we and that's only a hundred years ago. Trial and error. We do everything through trial and error. Evolution does everything through trial and error. I mean, we didn't even 
We actually promoted, I think it was in, you can go back and watch commercials from the 50s where they said smoking was good for fitness. Mm-hmm. And that's in the 50s. Yep. So that's not that long ago. Mm-mm. I mean, for my lifetime it is, but <laughs> I mean, my for my dad, he was only born a couple years after that. Mm-hmm. So it's not long ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are by all means not perfect. No, I mean, when I teach basic anatomy, I think the students are are startled because I'll, I'll point things out like, you know, oh, this is the coccyx. This breaks 90% of the time if you give birth. You know, it's not well designed. Or, you know, this joint, like your knee joint, hmm. is a hugely vulnerable joint. Yep. It's, it's super exposed. All the tendons are just hanging out waiting to get smashed by something when you don't see the table when you come around the corner. I think it's the most used right next to our back. Right. Mm. Despite being an incredibly crucial part of how we function, it's not very well protected. Our rib cage makes sense to protect your organs if you're on four legs. Yeah. We've stood up. What's it doing? It's just hanging out. Mm. You know, it still it still does give us some protection, but not in the way not that... Not if it hits you in the front. Right. There's nothing there. It makes a lot more sense if you were on four legs. Mm. We have co-opted all of this to stand up a monkey and bobble around on two legs. <laughs> well, it was probably just a faster way to travel to be bipedal. Maybe sure. that was the I mean, whole evolutionary event. It's, it, it's, it's faster. You can see further distances. Your hands are free to do things like carry your young, carry food. So there are definite advantages. If it was to fish, if it was to see further, man, I mean... I need glasses. So I'm <laughs> yeah, well, there is that. Yeah. But again, that also is probably... I, I highly doubt um, hominids back then needed glasses. I think that is just a very new thing of us staring at screens, staring at TVs, books, newspapers. Or maybe the ones who did need glasses didn't last very long. Or that. You know? Yeah, or that. The other thing to remember when we're looking at the fossil records is that we're looking at individuals who died. So when you see juveniles, mm. for one reason or another, they didn't make it to adulthood. And maybe that was a predator, and it's nothing to do with their adaption. But maybe it's because they were trying something that didn't work, because that's how evolution works. It'll throw out a whole bunch of options, and the ones that work reproduce, and the ones that don't die. Mm. Because evolution doesn't Can I get your opinion on some pseudoscience? Sure. Um, as an archaeologist, paleoanthropologist, kind of a, you are a historian, whether you like it or not, you're a historian in a different kind of way. I know a lot of people say historians as, yeah, I studied the Second and First World War. Mm. You're a historian on a grand scale. Okay. Um, what do you think of the Younger Dry's impact theory? Which is, you've probably heard of it. It's really popular with individuals like Graham Hancock, which you might have heard of. Um, so basically it's, we were possibly an advanced civilization before the younger Dryas theory of what, where we had that big impact. Uh-huh. So bef- you've probably heard of it. I don't know if you have. So no, I haven't. Um, you know they're finding, or you know, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, what do you call them? Um, like underground pyramids and stuff like that. They found they're finding um, like advanced things under there, and they want to say. We were very advanced beings, and then this event happened. Okay. 
So I've not I've not heard much about this theory, but let me see if I've I understand it. We were an advanced civilization, and then there was a catastrophic event, and we basically had to start over. Yeah, is that the theory? Mm. And I think if memory serves me right, was the younger was the younger Dryas theory like twelve thousand years ago or something? I think. Don't quote me on that, mm. <laughs> but it was something along those lines. But gathering so, gathering because you've been around the hominid species so much from before Erectus, well now you're saying Erectus, well not you specifically uh, but people are saying Erectus could be the earliest ones, we'll just say hominids in a whole spectrum right? Mm -hmm. You probably looked at them all, so what is your opinion on this? Look, I'm not super familiar with that particular theory, Mm -hmm. but honestly there's a dozen other like it yeah. So there was there was a theory that um, what is it uh, like twelve thousand BC we forgot how to write and we forgot how to make fire and all of this and we had to start over. I actually started my uni degree as a classics major, so this was like something that anyway. What I would say is that, that's a theory. I haven't heard that one. How did we forget that? They would just kind of wake up one day and were like, hey, how did we do that thing again? The <laughs> hypothesis is that there was a catastrophic civilization collapse. Okay. And all this knowledge was lost. Um, it, Like all of these things, there are grains of truth. That one correlates with a mass invasion um, from a thus unknown population from across the Mediterranean, mm. which did bring down certain civilizations, right? And then it spirals. It's like the idea of the lost city of Atlantis does correlate with an eruption in the Mediterranean which sunk an island. So these things always start in a grain of truth. And some of the evidence for things like underground pyramids or the other one that's often referenced is there are pyramids on different continents from civilizations that never interacted that look exactly the same. And how could that possibly have been true? Oh, is that kind of um, how um, some cultures believe in uh, deities that look the same but never came in contact? Right. Yeah. Right. And the thing I would say is like, so there are there is a particular type of step pyramid that exists in Asia, South America, and Africa. And how, how would these all have been made by cultures that never met each other? The answer is, of course, this is the simplest way to stack a pile of rocks so it doesn't fall down right this is geometry mm. we all kind of got there together one plus one equals two everywhere. right yeah we, we all are capable of figuring that out why is there a snake creation god in australia and south america and north america and asia everywhere has snakes everywhere has snakes they can kill you they take up a point of significance mm. what there is globally is a way that our minds work we are evolved to do things like recognize patterns and assign significance to things. It's not surprising that we kind of occasionally land on the same thing without interaction. Now, the idea of a really advanced civilization and then a catastrophic event and then we've started over is... I would need to see some solid evidence. That's why you know, that's what I'm saying pseudoscience. Where, where, because I don't know... I don't. It doesn't... There isn't evidence. You know, what we do have evidence for 
is a slow progression across millions of years from a common ancestor with apes where we slowly became what we are today. Mm. There were step backs and step forwards and all of these things, things that we tried and failed, but there's no solid evidence of an earlier intelligent human species that was then wiped out. Um, One thing we do know happened is there was a bottleneck in our population around that time period, around 2000 years ago. And this might be what's prompting some of these theories. So if you trace back the genetics of all humans on earth, we know that- By bottleneck, you mean like a small population that existed? Yes. So about 12,000 years ago, we almost went extinct as a species. Mm. That is true. And that was from a meteor or something? Um, that was likely from climate change, uh, right? A mm. drastic climate shift that put huge pressure on things, which think, some people think could have been a meteor, right? Yeah. And and maybe it was. Mm. And I mean, it's not uncommon that meteors hit us, so right, mm. exactly. We know this has happened. Mm. Dinosaurs are an example. <laughs> <laughs> well, we almost went the way of the dinosaurs. Yeah, a very teeny tiny population survived around the northern Mediterranean, and then repopulated. So that is true. And all of these pseudoscientific theories start from a grain of truth. What is not true is that we were, you know, doing crazy things before that, forgot all that knowledge, and then started again. Mm. We did genetically bottleneck. We did lose a lot of variability. We are hugely invariable for the number of us on the planet today compared to any if any other species had the amount of genetic variability that we had today, we would put, we would categorize them on the verge of extinction. We just have the numbers. <laughs> do we know what the numbers were of what it dwindled to in terms of percentage? We do, but I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> um, well, for, uh, it is a known thing. It is not known mm. to me. Um, and from there, we did repopulate. So... That is true. But we weren't building pyramids and all of this before that. Mm. You know, that is, there's no evidence. Mm. And by what you mean, because we obviously did build the pyramids, but um, what you mean by that is uh, like really advanced, like laser tool cutting type of deals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know know what you're trying to say. Um, Still, like the idea of um, us building pyramids at all as you know, you think about the times is really, really impressive and it still does boggle my mind. Um, but that's a completely different conversation. <laughs> um, obviously not your wheelhouse. Uh, going back to your wheelhouse, though, mm. which is uh, the teeth and stuff. I was just thinking about this before, but I forgot about it, so I'd like to bring it up now before I forget it again, mm-hmm. uh, which is our diets historically. Now, a lot of that you've probably heard of the the paleo diet and stuff like mm-hmm. that and you know the carnivore diet and stuff mm-hmm. like that aren't we really just omnivores i mean don't we really just eat everything that's what we do we're evolved to be generalists mm. we are evolved to be so ironically an adaption that started to make us really adaptable which is being omnivores. We can eat meat, we can eat vegetables, we can eat fruit, we can eat fish, we can eat whatever is available. And that means we can survive in a way that other creatures can't, which is a huge advantage, has kind of almost become 
now. A disadvantage. Because we got too much of it? Well, because of, instead of being able to eat anything, we now have to eat everything. You have to have a balanced diet. Hmm. You know? So we've almost become reliant on the variety now. So when I hear paleo diet, you know, cut out processed uh, grains and eat meats and all these things, what I would say is that if someone wants to eat the paleo diet, is that first they need to run for 12 kilometers after that animal, <laughs> kill it, skin it, drag it back to camp, and once they've burned all those calories, they can eat as much as they please. Yeah. That's, <laughs> um, I had this conversation with uh, someone at work. So they were talking about meat eating. Mm -hmm. Look, I eat meat as well, but I also eat vegetables, I also eat mm -hmm. fruits, I also eat grains, I eat everything. I don't eat, I don't actually eat takeaway. I, like, look, I will now and again, like yeah, everyone sure. enjoys, enjoys it here and there. Um, you got to, <laughs> but that was, that was kind of my argument mm. towards this individual was, okay, let's just say you're in a field of vegetables and fruits and stuff. You could just sit there and eat, mm -hmm. or there's a gazelle over there that's going to be running for quite some time. You're going to be chasing it for quite some time. Mm -hmm. You're going to probably be even hungrier by the time you catch it, or you could just sit here and eat. Mm -hmm. So which one is more beneficial for survival? So I don't know if you've heard the phrase persistence hunting. Mm. So this is the idea that the way we used to hunt, and this is still seen in certain um, traditionally, traditionally living groups today. You're not faster than a gazelle. But we can do something really special. Endurance. Which is sweat. Oh. We can sweat. Mm. Which means after four hours of running in the same direction, that gazelle's overheated and you're not. And eventually it just stops because it can't anymore. And you're still going. I gotta tell you, I'm not running for it. <laughs> <laughs> no, you and me, we can do the gathering. Yeah. Leave that to somebody else. <laughs> um, and, you know, these cultures don't eat meat every day. They will get a kill. They will gorge on that. But most of the time, they're hungry afterwards again. They're relying on non-meat food mm. sources, you know? So I think I think the paleo diet in a true sense and the way we live today, sedentary, you know, meat at every day, maybe every meal, those two things are mutually exclusive. Yeah, yeah we need exercise. We'll, mm. we'll just build for it. I mean, look, yeah. exercise to us now is just walking, running, lifting. Right. right. Back then, exercising was an everyday chore that they didn't even realize mm -hmm. was exercise. It was just what they did. Right. And, you know, you don't need to go crazy, right? We don't need to all be in the gym six days a week, but we should walk. We should not sit all the time. It's not good for us. No. We're not adapted to do that. Mm. It puts a ridiculous amount of pressure on our lumbar, so our lower vertebra. And our vital organs. Uh, our vital organs, the sacroiliac joints, were not meant for it. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, get up, walk around. I know, obviously, not everyone can do this because everyone's got to earn a living. And if that living is sitting at a desk all day, then that's what we've got. But it's not what, you know, is biologically best for us. Well, even that, I mean... I know people who work at a desk job and on their half an hour break, 
you know, they eat for, they could have a quick lunch, it could be 10, mm. 15 minutes, but then the rest of their lunch break, they're, they're using the rest of their lunch break to walk. Sure. Which is, I mean, that that's perfect. I yeah. Mean, and even like um, commuting into work and back, I mean, even if you walk to the train station or just say you drive to the train station and then you got to take a train to work and you walk the rest of the way. Mm. That there's more walking calculated in. It's just that you just got to find ways to add it. Yeah. I mean, I got to be honest, I'm pretty lazy. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm not in the field yeah. digging holes and carrying buckets, I like to be laying on my couch. Yeah. Which is absolutely not great for me, mm. but also I'm lazy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know what? You probably do a lot of exercise in the field. I mean, yeah, the field the field's a lot more physical than mm. I was saying to you before. You know, after three years in lockdown, not going to the gym, I had a very bad surprise this year in the field. Yeah, the the lockdown, um, I feel, made people even lazier. It, it did. I think it created an issue. It's hard. Look, I, the lockdown and COVID and all that. I have my feelings on it. That's a whole other conversation. Mm. But um, it it made people so lazy. Look, one thing I will actually bring up is I don't understand why we kept every fast food and unhealthy industry open and kept every health industry closed. To me, that made that didn't make what that didn't make much sense to me. Much to my surprise. I mean, even supplement stores where you can get you know vitamin vitamin pills and protein powders and stuff like that were closed well much to my surprise archaeology was considered an essential service so i kept working all through the oh lockdowns. wow uh, i think we were all a bit shocked but because we're tied to the construction industry we were oh, considered construction yeah. so i have my little uh, permit going through the ring of steel that's interesting to dig my holes uh <laughs> through lockdown which definitely kept me sane um but no i think I think it was a difficult time for all of us. It, it, it left a lot of people kind of reevaluating their priorities, mm. you know, what they wanted out of life and things like that. I saw a lot of people switching industries. We've had a huge number of mature age students coming back to university mm. afterwards. I think, you know, it was a bit of a time for everyone to sit and think. And mm. hopefully in the long run, those things can be positive, but it's definitely left some scars. Mm. Have you ever seen the show Chimp Empire? Mm-mm. It seems like something you'd be really interested in. So, and I only say that because basically, chimps are like under in our ancestral. Yeah. So, this is literally just a group of scientists and documentationists which are in uh, the are in a jungle documenting the uh, Genobo chimp tribe. Yeah. Yeah. And the way they live is insane. Like you see the hierarchy. They I don't even know chimps ate monkeys. Yeah like violently they hunt them i know with spears that they make it's crazy that they make okay that they use no no i'm saying make oh, forget it i'm saying make i'll stand by it so they're tool makers that's what you're saying <laughs> look i have quite a broad definition of this i think you know the fact that they select these branches they modify them even a little bit mm. i'm calling it tool making i would really recommend that show for you like okay. the chimp empire it's really good i'll look into it yeah Hey, look, this has been really fun. Uh, thank you for coming on. It, it does mean a lot to me. And I'm sure I'll see you down the track because I'm coming to finish my degree at Latrobe and you're from Latrobe. So <laughs> I'm sure I'll see you again. Yeah, and no. I am holding you to 
that tour for the lab. I'd really like to see that. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. It's been great fun. Shoot me a buzz and I'll uh, show you the fossil casts and the labs and all that stuff. Yeah, thank you. And uh, is there anything you would like to plug your social media or anything like that where people can find you and ask you questions? Or Yeah, so my Twitter is ablease, A-B-L-E-E-C-E. Shoot me a message. Um, happy to chat with anyone about broad interests or anything like that. And um, if you follow, you'll get to see some cool photos from our Dremelin excavations. And uh, yeah, hopefully you find it interesting. Cool. Thank you very much. Thanks.